We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Sod Talk Radio. I'm your host, Jason Martin, and with me tonight are co-hosts Neil Bradley. Hello. Juliana Barambwem. Hi. And Laura Nightyajic. Hello. Tonight's show, Hydrogenitis Superativa, or Noise Disease, or Great Balls of Puss All Up in Your Junk. Nerves shaken, brain rattled, well, fear not. We're about to get the skinny on this more common than you think illness with a world-renowned expert. Rapping for the Northeast Side Clinic, Val d'Ouest, is Dr. Philippe Guillaume specializing in visceral and colonoproctological surgeries, and recent winner of the Prix du Colité et Sécurité des Soins. I hope I didn't butcher that too, uh, too bad. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for that introduction. Um, well, with a name like Hydrodenitis Superativa, it's perhaps not immediately obvious what medical condition we're talking about today. However, if you take a moment to look up superation in the dictionary, you'll discover that it means the formation or discharge of pus, which should start to give you an idea. Hydrodenitis is a chronic and stubborn skin condition centered on inflammation of large specialized sweat glands, the apocrine glands, that are found mainly in the armpits and groin area. These areas show a distinctive mixture of boil-like lumps, areas leaking pus, and scarring, which can be itchy and usually painful. The lumps hurt also, they hurt an awful lot if they're pressed. Aside from the pain and unpleasantness of this condition, it's also embarrassing and unsightly. Now, if you've ever suffered from repeating boils, often though not always in private areas of the body, or if your quote-unquote acne during puberty never quite went away, or in fact if it worsened, you may in fact be at risk of developing what we're talking about today. We're very fortunate to be joined by one of the world's, if not the world's, top expert on this condition. Dr. Philippe Guillem, Guillem, excuse me, he studied medicine at Lille in the north of France and then in Lyon, where he has worked at the Clinique du Val d'Ouest since 2006. He's a specialist in enterology and has published numerous papers, many of them in English. In the course of performing many surgeries on cancers and other chronic diseases of the digestive system, Dr. Guillem became interested in, I hate, I'm going to call it HS from here on in, <laughs> after he noticed that many patients were coming to him with similar symptoms. At this point, he has seen over 300 patients suffering from hydrogenitis superativa and has performed single or multiple surgeries more than 450 times. Being in touch with these patients on a regular basis inspired Dr. Guillem to constantly improve medical care for them and to research as best he could to find out what is causing this condition. Dr. Guillem has been formally recognized in France. Jason mentioned the award there. The award is a prix special. It's an honor of all his, his work towards this. specific way he provides patient care from start to finish. It's not just the surgery, there's the follow-up care that includes counseling, dietary advice, 
a special treatment with a hyperbaric chamber for faster healing. Wicked fun. It, it's just fun. And we, we've got some stories about it. Yeah. The post-surgery services for nursing and so on and so forth. So it's a very interesting topic we've got today. And also, I think we'll find a lot more prevalent than people have ever considered. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's uh, my turn to talk <laughs> as Jason's mother <laughs> because uh, I can give a little bit of the story about what happened to him from you know, the side of the parent. Uh, he apparently started having these problems when he hit puberty. But as the description of the disease explains, it's so embarrassing, and especially to a, a young boy who is you know, in, in the pubescent stages, that they're certainly not going to tell their mother about it, for God's <laughs> sake. And he didn't. He would not tell me how he was suffering. And this went on for several years. And the truth is, since he wasn't telling me what was happening, what was going on, uh, I perceived it as just simply that he was not being clean enough, that he didn't clean his room often enough, that he didn't uh, uh, hand his dirty laundry over to me to be washed, that he was... uh, you know, there were there were several things, and of course he didn't feel well either. So since he didn't feel well, since he was in pain, he was not as vigilant about keeping his room clean, uh, making his bed, uh, putting his things away. <laughs> that a mother expects a young boy to do. So I was in a constant state of war with him. <laughs> It, and it really was. It was a war. Uh, and, and for those of you joining us in the chat room, they'll be posting bare-ass baby pictures of me next. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> as, but, if, as if the horror and embarrassment weren't enough. Well, anyway, by the time he was 15, he had one of these uh, boils that this condition causes that was so bad that he had to tell mom. And when I saw the darn thing... I was absolutely horrified, absolutely horrified. I mean, I can't even. Well, I remember this. It was it was crazy. This um, I thought actually that the problem was that I had sat down too quick or something. I had been convinced of this because she she said it is a boil and, uh, you know, how does a boil form and stuff. Well, there was some sort of wound and something got caught in it and stuff like that, and then it sealed over and then it started to like you know. I guess you would say the, the simple term would be rot inside there and then form pus and stuff. So, I mean, I thought that I had, like, sat down too fast or something and hurt myself. So here I have this gigantic boil that was probably about the size of one and a half silver dollars or something like that at the time uh, right at the top of my butt crack. And, uh, yeah, come on, what am I going <laughs> to say? That's, that's where it was. And uh, I, I don't think you could really appreciate how crazy... <laughs> How crazy the whole situation is. I mean, it's quite comic. If you had it in, as a scene in a movie, I mean, people would be rolling around laughing because basically, you know, I'm having trouble sitting down, having trouble moving after a while because, you know, that area kind of jiggles and moves around when, you, when you're walking. So finally I went to her and I'm like, well, I got to do something because I tried to do it myself. And you don't, you don't understand. They, they are very painful and kind of like, I mean, you know, you, you kind of grit your teeth. After a while, I got so accustomed to it that I could take care of it myself, especially after this particular situation, which I'm going to explain to you because, because if, I'm going to be, if I'm going to be shamed 
on, on public radio, live public radio. <laughs> God damn it, it's going to be me. <laughs> right? Um, because uh, cause she basically had to, to lance and, and pop this thing, you know? I mean, because it was really painful and, you know, the best, the, her, yeah, at the time, we, our understanding was the best thing to do. It's hot soak first. And hot then... soaks and then, and then pop it. And, and so there I am, you know, on the bed. <laughs> <laughs> with my pants down around my knees <laughs> and my mom on top of me and you did, I mean it had because it, it basically what had happened is because of the pressure of me sitting down on it it seems to have just caused it to kind of expand so while on the surface it looked like a certain size really it was it was quite large and so it just kept producing producing it out. and at one point at one point she was squeezing it and then all of a sudden she jumped to the side because it had, it had shot something out oh, and it barely missed her and of course after that situation i sure as shit didn't want to you know go and get someone to do it again because it was i was really yeah. quite horrifying so from then on i started like, kind of taking care of them for my for myself i mean what i would do is i'd get like a trash bag and i would Use it like a tourniquet on the area and then roll it. I would tighten it really, really tight and then roll it across the area because, you know, I mean, it's really hard with your fingers when it's really painful. So you kind of have to do it and then you real quick and then that kind of takes care of it, you know. Oh, let me let me continue here. <clears throat> no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> no, more, no more stories about my because because it is as they say it's a shameful disease and you can't help but be kind of like really embarrassed well and the thing is is that is when a parent doesn't know that this is what the child is suffering they think that something else is, is wrong that the you know the kid is just being rebellious or not wanting to you know do the things they're supposed to do so you know of course i have a lot of guilt because <laughs> I didn't know what was really going on. He wasn't telling me what was going on. Years went by, and he ended up with a, a, another one of these things on his neck. Yeah. And, he had, and that was, I think, his first surgery. He had to go yeah. in and have this thing removed from his neck. Well, at this point, I'm starting to get a clue that there is something going on here. You have somebody who has repeating boils, and, you know, the imagination just goes crazy. So at that point... Um, uh, I just really didn't know what to do. We we were trying everything. He was uh, soaking in God knows anything he could name or mention. And um, well, I mean, it got it got pretty bad. At one point, I had gone to like the dentist, and uh, the dentist had prescribed me some some pain kill painkillers, which I I didn't really uh, have to take all of them. And so when I got this thing on my neck, um, it just blew up. I was in Bas Normandy at the time at this martial arts stage. And um, I got this thing, and it's huge on my neck. So I was there in like the hotel room, you know, trying to uh, trying to get some relief from this thing. And I ended up basically just having to take some pain pills to get through it until I could get back home. And so that's when uh, that's when we went to the the doctor in in Wasak. And this guy was, of course, what you really would expect from kind of like a movie doctor. He was very self assured, very confident. He knew exactly what it was. It was an ingrown hair, and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I and I needed uh, surgery. So he said, "Okay, so we'll take you into surgery." And I had, and what had happened is they had developed symmetrically on the back of my neck. And uh, so what he said is, "Well, we're going to have to go in and, and, and basically vacate all of the pus from these two things. It's an ingrown hair. It's no problem. It's no problem." And uh, 
So I went into surgery, my first general anesthesia ever in my life. Totally freaked out and scared because, you know, I mean, never been knocked out before. Uh, but I go in and it, I don't know, it was kind of dickish actually because I, I thought he was kind of incompetent. I went in for this general anesthesia. He was supposed to take out both of them. And then when I come to, he tells me, oh, we only did one uh, because we couldn't turn you. And then what happened? Oh, well, I don't know what you mean when you go like this. Is like, stop talking, time's run out, or no, no, <laughs> just no. say it. <laughs> I have no idea. So, so then what happened uh, in uh, after that one? Uh, then what happened after that one? Oh, yeah. hold on. Um, interrupted me in the middle of a story. <laughs> no, so, um, so yeah, right after and I came out and was talking to him, and he was like, oh, we didn't find the hair. And I was like, well, then obviously it wasn't an ingrown hair. And uh, so then, you know, after that, um, I had another one that developed uh, in my groin area, like right underneath the, the flap of my belly, my belly flap, because I'm a big dude, right? At that time, I was like even a bigger dude. I was like more than pleasantly pumped. I was like, you know, overflowing <laughs> in that area. And so like basically, I kind of got one like right there, right above my genitals. And uh, it started as a little small thing, and I was like, well, I've had things like that before. And so I had learned basically like to not get too too aggressive with it, but wait for it for the right time and then kind of like, you know, take care of it. Um, and uh, But it wouldn't stop producing, you know, pus, and it, uh, I guess it had gotten, gotten infected. We'll find out what it was in just a minute. So I go to this other clinic in like Montauban. And I talked to this this doctor, whose name I'm not going to say, but this was like the the worst doctor I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, he was just mean to me. Um, basically, he said the whole reason was I was just fat. He didn't say anything about what it was. He just said it was uh, just a just a boil, and uh, it was it was really big. It was probably about the um, tennis the size ball. of a. A little bit, yeah, but it was oblong-shaped as well. I mean, it was probably like a small teacup. And uh, so he went in and he just, like, aggressively cut the whole thing out, right? So I basically had something that you could, like, fit almost your fist in, right in that fold area. You know, it was really quite it was quite aggressive cutout, actually, that he took. He just said he just took everything out because he didn't, he didn't really know what it was. Um, but yeah, that guy was, he was, he was really kind of mean about it. And, uh, you know, he tried to, he tried to sell me on the stomach stapling. He said that I was morbidly obese and if I didn't do something about it right away, I was going to die. And then he started telling me how he was like this, he, he was basically selling these, these stomach stapling surgeries and he had this new special device and basically like they leave a hole in you and you can tighten it <laughs> and loosen it right it's got like a little knob yeah. he's trying to sell me on this stuff and i'm like, no thanks not interested whatever and then uh as a funny aside to that story though um after uh, after another situation that doesn't really have anything to do with Renoy specifically because uh, i went in for another surgery and we found out that uh, i might be very very sensitive to uh, certain types of food when i cut those out i uh I lost 60 kilos like very quickly, so I had like saggy skin. And then when I went back for a totally different problem, um, and I, I was then at that point thinner than him. Like before, I had like morbidly obese, and now I was thinner than this guy. And the only thing he could say to me is, "Well, you probably have a lot of saggy skin." <laughs> I was like, "You bastard!" 
For sure. Um, so then, uh, let's see, after that situation, what I ended up having was, uh, well, it's kind of, it's, it's roundaboutly connected. I had, I guess, what, what they called, the gastroenterologist called it the sigmoiditis, right? I just had some sort of random swelling of the colon. He didn't know what it was. He went in with like a colonoscopy and said, there's nothing wrong. I don't know why you have this problem. But um, I was in the hospital for like 10 days from the sigmoiditis. This is where we should really talk about the fistula problem. Well, I'm getting to that fistula problem. This is, this is the lead up to the fistula. Yeah. So I had the sigmoiditis, so I was horribly inflamed when I – I'm in like serious, horrible, horrible pain. I was like deathbed confessional. Um, and then they carted me off. They, <laughs> they, they sort of debated whether or not they should even call the ambulance. But I was like, no, I can ride. So we get to this hospital and the doctor's like, we have to cut your colon out <clears throat> because it's, you're, it's all tarted and we don't know what's wrong. <laughs> and so we're like, no, no, no. Is there any other option? He said, we can try some antibiotics. So uh, for 10 days, I was in the hospital on intravenous antibiotics, and I, and I got better. And uh, that's the point where we kind of learned that uh, well, what he had said to us basically is before well, while I was in there, taking the antibiotics, he says, okay, now, now that we've reduced the, the inflammation, you have, to, um, you have to get a colonoscopy. And uh, so leading up to this colonoscopy, you need to eat a non-residue diet. And we were like, doctor, what's that? And he's like, oh, it means you don't eat like vegetables and stuff like that. You just eat like meat and, and things to kind of clean out your colon a little bit. And so then we're like, oh, that might be a good idea. And as soon as I started that, I even got, I got better so quickly actually that I ended up, I didn't, didn't have to stand very long. Um, but after I had the sigmoiditis, right, um, I guess the situation was that my colon was very weak or something like this. And I formed like a perianal fistula, Right. And so I had this fistula, and it was leaking. So I go back to the same clinic to the doctor, right? So this is doctor number two. It's the guy's partner who was the mean guy, right? And then this guy, the other guy was mean, and this guy was just basically <laughs> – I'm not going to say his name either. Anyway, so I go back to this guy, and I say, um, my butt's leaking pus. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what I said, especially because my fringe is not so great. So I had to be, like, really direct about it. So he's like, okay. So, so he has me drop my drawers, and he's all up in there with, like, the stick and stuff. I mean, seriously, if you've oh ever had God. a proctological examination, it's not any fun. No. Um, anyway, and so he's like, I see that it's producing pus, but I don't know why. Which I said, well, I have to go to Austria because I was going on on to Austria. And he's like, well, you're fine to go. <coughs> so I go to Austria um, and uh, I get basically a giant uh, abscess at the end of this fistula that is basically connected to my bootay. And uh, so I end up into uh, quite possibly one of the the most expensive and worst clinics in Austria, uh, which was just a fun – the doctor there was great, Dr. Deckstein. He was totally awesome. He was like – he was a cool, smooth customer, Mm -hmm. you know, very – he was kind of a dandy. He always wore this really nice suit and vest and stuff, but he was was such a nice guy, and he he really did seem concerned. And uh, he was – what happened is that uh, I had gotten this this abscess, and it was getting worse, getting worse. And I had gone to the pharmacy there, and I had asked them for a topical analgesic, and they wouldn't sell it to me. And I was like, even in France, you can get, you, in France you can go in and you can get a, some kind of topical analgesic, but they wouldn't give me anything at all. 
And so there I was with this huge abscess on my butt. And I couldn't sit. I couldn't walk. couldn't do anything. It kept getting bigger. And I was, like, soaking in hot water. And I was putting, like, Epsom salts in. And I was trying anything I could. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I couldn't sleep the entire night. And so I was up for an entire night. So then I went to, to Mike, who I was staying with at the time. Uh, my friend in, in Austria, and I said, uh, we got to go to the hospital, man. <clears throat> and so he was like, uh, it's only a couple bucks away. <laughs> Do you want to walk? And I and I said, yes. It was a bad idea because about halfway there, I was just like, wow, this is not going to happen. So there I am in this 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 Austrian, um, what was the name of it? Krankenhaus. I can't remember the name of it, but they call it a Krankenhaus in Austria. And uh, so I get there, and they're just running me around, running me around. So for like four hours, I'm basically like walking from department to department to department in this place. Finally, I get in to see the proctologist, and it was a chick. Now, I know this has nothing to do with like, you know, women can't be doctors or anything like that. It's like if you're a dude, the last person you want to be looking into your junk in your butt is, is a chick. And she was... You know, I mean, at the time, you know, she was a young chick as well. <laughs> so, I mean, so I was like, what the, what's this all about? So she has me drop my drawers. So I'm like, you know what? I'm in so much pain. I don't care. I mean, when you have a disease like this, shame goes right out the window. Like, I have no more shame. Like, I've, I've been spread open and flipped around and twisted and had like five. I had a student nurses come in to watch my wound dressing with my legs up in stirrups and stuff. I mean, it's just gone out the door. So she... So, so she does the worst thing any doctor could ever do, right? So she has me drop my drawers, and she has me lay down, and she goes and she lifts my butt cheek, and then she goes, oh, and jumps back like three feet, and she's like, you need surgery now. Oh, and I'm like, damn it, man. No. Um, so basically, she, so, so then she's like, you have to have the surgery, and you have to sign this waiver. And I look at the waiver, and it says, oh, it's just that there's a high probability that you'll never be able to control your sphincter again. And I was like, oh, What? But at this point, you know, that I had gotten, I would managed to get checked in. And so we, I called Chu and, and, and mom about this. And they were like, no, you can't do it. So they went and they did a whole bunch of research about the surgery within like the couple hours that I was being prepped for the surgery, which she said I had to have. So they had stuck me with IVs and getting me ready. And all of a sudden they called back and they said, no, you can't do this surgery. You'll never be able to shit again or whatever it is, right? That's <laughs> not exactly what they said, but it's more or less what they what they said. Anyway, so so then basically, like I could, this is the hospital that you can't escape from because they all say that you can leave voluntarily, but they like guilt trip you. But we've already put the IV in, but you signed the waiver, <laughs> and it's like it was like the Hotel California of hospitals here. Um, so finally, we get out of this place. We go to this other place. And I get put on another five day five days worth of of antibiotics for this this abscess, um, and that was like the most horrible experience in any hospital of like my entire life, because I, it was not for me, because I I basically had everything that I needed when it came to that because uh, you know I just had this you know abscess, but like the way that the other people were treated, there was this poor old guy, man. Oh, dude. I mean, the stories, the stories that I could tell about what happened in that in that clinic were just insane. How then? How then did you first come across the term hydrogenitis superativa? Well, this is where we come to France. Oh, you know, <clears throat> oh yeah, I, I just want to I just want to kick in here that <laughs> when he went to this hospital, you know, I got on the telephone and I tried to talk to this doctor, and when the doctor refused to talk to me, his mother, I said, "You're not treating my son." 
Oh yeah, that's right. You call and her name. I, I can't yeah, say her what, name. No, no. I was there. And, and that's when I found another clinic, and I found that they had a room. And I said, I called my son back, and I said, you check out of the hospital where you are. You go to this place. They have a room. They're waiting for you. They are not going to start cutting you to pieces. They will no. try a a more uh, less. A less aggressive. Well, that therapy. was his specialty. Actually, was to find non-invasive ways to deal with diseases. The surgery as a last resort was his main thing. He was really quite good, and and and, and that clinic actually to be so bad. It was the nurse that made that clinic basically. But the thing was, was we got him out of there. We got him to another place. Got him under control. So we got him home. And then when we got him home. That's when we found Dr. in Toulouse who said, well, you know, we, at this point there was a fistula. A fistula is like a tunnel that forms underneath. It's like a, uh, imagine, uh, uh, imagine a super volcano under your skin brewing and forming tunnels. Well, that's kind of what a fistula well, is. Well, let me, let me explain I just realized something. a little better. This story is not even over yet. <laughs> I mean, I never really thought about how long it would take. <laughs> a fistula, when you have a boil... And it's very deep because it's, it's because the uh, agents are kind of like growing into the body, and it it doesn't come out through the skin so easily. So what it does is it starts making tunnels. And I've seen pictures of people with these boils on the back of their uh, on their lower back, like just above the uh, the, the cleft in the uh, in the buttocks, and they would. They would have these fistulas that would push, drive their way all the way up into their back. And it's just really a horrible thing when the thing makes the fistula. So what he had at this point was a fistula. And we'll let Dr. Gillam talk about it because it's one yeah. of the key things that you don't want to happen. Right. But anyway, just to let Dr. Gillam talk because he's waiting. Um, so just to make it short, we um, we found this surgeon by the time it was an emergency, and he said, hmm, have you looked into Vernet disease? And we're like, what? And here, come to my computer. I'll show you a picture. And we're like, wow, that could be it. So, you know, he still performed the surgery trying to solve the the emergency problem. And as soon as we got home, we uh, started researching and researching, and that's when we found a very, very good nonprofit called Solidarité Verneuil, uh, run by a lady called Hélène Renault, which is uh, Renal, who is, who is great, and awesome. she's the one who recommended uh, Dr. Guillaume, whom we have with us tonight. And maybe it's time we say hello. Yeah. Hello. Hello, hello Dr. Guillaume. Hello. So, yes, found Dr. Gillem, and it was a miracle. It was, um, he not only solved the problem or performed an excellent surgery, and he'll describe uh, what, was, what the difference is between his surgery uh, and the searching for fistulas and all that, as opposed to just going to the emergency in the night and having it solved one time and wait till the next one appears. Yeah, the problem is is that you keep going from doctor to doctor to doctor and they all have some theory about it and they apply their, uh, you know, basically cut everything out uh, solutions because they don't know what they're dealing with. I mean, they really don't because it's not widely enough known. It's just not recognized. 
So, Doctor, now that we've given a, a very detailed story and examples, oh, yeah. um, can you tell us in very simple terms for our, for our listeners what the disease is? Yes. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for your invitation. I, I think we will have later the opportunity to discuss this point, but I can already say that it is really very important to speak up about this disease via any means possible. An approach, an approach like yours is really meaningful for the patients. And I, I also would like to acknowledge for my English, please, please speak slowly and, above all, be tolerant. Yes, <laughs> we, will, we will. Okay. Hypodynitis um, uh, superativa is a, a, a chronic, inflammatory, recurrent, and debilitating disease of the skin. And all these words are important for the diagnosis and the treatment. This disease affects areas of the body that bear apocrine sweat glands. Uh, this, uh, the, the disease only affects some of the sweat glands and these sweat glands are located in special areas of the body. The diagnosis is, uh, is based on three main diagnostic criteria, but there are also accessory diagnostic criteria that can be useful. The three main diagnostic criteria have to be encountered if you want to be ascertained that the disease is a uh, HS. But that means that in some cases, HS can only be suspected even if, in my opinion, the doctor should inform the patient of the possibility of this disease. The three main diagnostic criteria are typical lesions, typical localizations, and relapses in chronicity. The typical lesions are uh, deep-seated, painful nodules under the skin the, the other typical lesions are fibrosis, abscess. Abscess is the evolution uh, of a nodule because of infection. Other lesions are fistulous tracts. That, uh, that's what you, you called tunnels and other skin. Other lesions as, are fibrous and hypertrophic scars. What is important for in this disease is the, the recurrence and the relapses that always occur some, somewhere in the same area or anywhere else in the body. The second criteria is the typical localization, and typically the disease affects um, armpits and groins. This, these are the, the two most prevalent localizations of the disease. Other localizations are uh, perineum, anogenital area, breast, buttocks, nape of the neck, the scalp, behind the ears, the pubis, the thigh, or the fold between buttocks. All right, so let me just summarize here for a second. There has yeah. to be lesions, which can take several forms, such as abscesses, fistulas, uh, some kind Nodules, of... Nodules, yeah. Nodules, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Then the second criteria is that there has to be relapses in the same area or others. Right. Yeah. It's uh, recurrent. They have to be recurrent. How, how recurrent do they have to be? Every year, every month? Uh, we cannot predict in any way how the disease will relapse. Mm -hmm. It okay. can relapse in a few days or it can relapse two years later. Okay. Okay. And then the third criteria is that it has to happen in areas where the apocrine glands are, that is the armpits, the groin especially, yeah. the perineum, anogenital area, the back of the neck, behind the ears, under the breast, etc. Yes, there are also uh, other organizations but, uh, uh, that are rarely uh, affected by the disease. Mm -hmm. Consequences if it's not treated. Sorry. What are the uh, consequences if it's not recognized and treated? How bad can it get? Yeah, the, the first consequence of a patient is the pain. The disease is really painful, and uh, if the diagnosis is delayed, the patient uh, will stay with his pain for years and years. You, you talked about the uh, Solidarité Verneuil organization, and in this organization, the mean delay between the first appearance of the lesions and the correct di diagnosis of HS is eight years and a half. Oh, God. So, so just about everybody who has it goes for at least eight years before they get a correct diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yes. If the patient is uh, lucky, he, he or she uh, will meet uh, a doctor who is aware about the, the disease. But many patients, in fact, uh, meet, pay, meet doctors or nurses well about the disease. There are two problems. The first one is that the is and the second problem is if the diagnosis is made, the, the, the practitioner doesn't know how to treat correctly the, the, the disease. Yeah. We went 12 years. 12, 12 years. 13, 12 or 13 Almost years. 13, maybe. Yeah. 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 And but, but, what is but, the proper treatment? Oh, there are several treatments, but in fact, uh, no treatment is uh, yet available to definitively cure the disease. Uh, but uh, the, the disease can always relapse in, in a few days or in uh, several years. The patients are always exposed to a recurrence of the disease. What causes it? Um, the, the, the disease affects uh, area where uh, apocrine sweat glands are numerous, but the, the main factor is uh, an occlusion of the hair follicle. Would you call that hyperkeratinosis? Yes, yes. Um, the hair follicle can be uh, blocked by the hyperkeratinosis. That, uh, that's, yes. that's an overproduction of skin cells, right? Yes, 
yes, okay. just in, in that so small uh, um, that small channel from uh, the, the deep part of the skin to the superficial part of the skin. And in this hair follicle, uh, several glands within the skin uh, uh, discharge uh, their secretions. And among these glands, there are uh, apocrine glands, but there are also other glands, of, such as sebaceous uh, glands. And in fact, in the uh, disease, we uh, mostly see um, boils developing from apocrine glands, but we also see uh, other cysts from sebaceous glands, for example. <laughs> that means the, the disease does not only affect apocrine glands, apocrine glands, but also other glands around the hair follicles. So it could be said that the probable cause is the overproduction of the skin cells or the keratin that causes the plug in the hair follicle into which the uh, different kinds of glands uh, emit their secretions. And yes. so the thing is, is that the problem is it's just an overproduction of keratin. Yes. In fact, we uh, don't know uh, whether the first event is the uh, occlusion of the hair follicle or whether it's inflammation that causes follicular occlusion. What we know is there is an association between follicular occlusion and inflammation. But we don't know uh, which is the first event in the disease. When you say inflammation, do you mean inflammation in a general sense, like the inflammation that's associated with arthritis or other autoimmune conditions? Yes, yes, it's inflammatory disease. So this is like an autoimmune condition? Yes, uh, another inflammatory condition. We, of course, there is a link between inflammation and uh, immunity. And uh, it is thought that in uh, HS, there is a defective immunity too. But again, we don't know what is the first event. Inflammation, follicular erosion, inflammation due to uh, defective immunity is not known. And, um, well, since we're talking about inflammation, uh, one of the uh, points you always uh, stress, no, no pun intended, is stress. Can you tell us a little bit about the link between HS and stress? Yes. Uh, stress and uh, more globally, uh, psychology is known to inflame uh, not only the occurrence of the disease, but also the occurrence the flare of the up that uh, uh, accompanying the, the disease. Uh, in fact, it is known that stress, anxiety, um, tiredness, or uh, depression uh, can affect immune system, and therefore, it is possible that uh, by modulating immunity, they can induce both the disease and the flare up. Uh, in, the, in the clinic where I work, um, 
I uh, propose systematically to a patient to encounter the psychologist, psychologist in the clinics, and I thought that the disease uh, induces uh, depression for the patient. Uh, so I think it was a good idea to suggest to encounter the psychologist only to, to speak about the disease. And in fact, was uh, what the psychologist uh, uh, learned to me is that sometimes uh, for the first appearance of the disease there is a psychologic shock just the disease such as the death of a member of the family or the separation of the parents or uh, separation with his or her spouse for example so the a psychological condition happens first, and then the disease manifests or the flare-up manifests, and that there is a, a distinct relationship. Is that it? Yes. Yes, but in fact, there is a, a vicious cycle, because in itself, the disease can induce stress. No kidding. <laughs> stress, depression, or... Uh, so uh, the patient uh, can fall into this vicious cycle uh, with a flare-up that induces stress, tiredness, and the disease um, takes advantage, takes advantage uh, from uh, this uh, depression or this tiredness, and uh, new boils appear now. And on top of that, they go to many doctors, they don't get diagnosed, they get told that it's because of a lack of hygiene or because they're overweight and all that must add a lot of stress to them. Mm. Yes, yes, the stress is also induced by the fact that the disease is not well recognized uh, by the, the doctors. How rare is it in your opinion? Sorry? What is the percentage that oh, happens? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Um, uh, several studies uh, found that uh, a global prevalence of 1 to 4 percent of the population. I think it's not a rare disease. 1 to 4 percent is a big, is a, it's a big percentage. That's uh, an I epidemic. Sorry? That is an epidemic. Yes. 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 I think everyone know at least 100 persons around here or her uh, and uh, I think uh, among these 100 persons, there is one person with a VHS. Everybody can understand that. Indeed. I mean, so many people w recognize that if they get a boil or a cyst or, or any number of different names that either they know or that their doctor told them this is X or this is Y, but in fact, they may actually have HS underneath that. And many don't talk about it because they're ashamed. Yes. yes. In fact, HS is quite often mistaken as common abscesses, boils, or even sexually transmitted diseases, skin infections, or ingrowing hair follicles. Mm -hmm. And patients, because of the localizations, Patients are often shy about talking about the disease. 
Absolutely. It's it's, it's a terrifying thing. So the thing is, is that my son came to you and you did a surgery on him. Yes. And when I saw the results of the surgery, I nearly had a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) It was really impressive. It It was was impressive, yeah. Yes, yes, because uh, uh, surgery uh, has to be performed in a large extent. Uh, the surgeon has to perform a large excision of the lesions. And if the lesion is uh, already large, the, the wound will be even larger. Yeah. And it takes a long time to heal. Yeah. Yes, of course, a long time to heal. Um, uh, the, the, the mean uh, healing duration is about two months. And uh, during this uh, time, you have to... to to, to perform the dress with the nurses every day. Yeah. yeah. And the hyperbaric chamber helped a lot. Yes. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is a, a therapy used for other conditions, uh, so, such uh, um, accident uh, with diving or uh, intoxication with uh, carbon monoxide. monoxide. Uh, again, that is uh, discharged by uh, 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 electric or uh, gas uh, uh, dispositive for for, uh, for coal, for the codeine. Sorry, yeah. codeine. This is say in French if you have trouble. It's okay. You yeah, say it in French. Des intoxications au monoxyde de carbone lié aux appareils de chauffage mal réglés. Oh, so it's intoxication by carbon monoxide, uh, dioxide, no, monoxide, monoxide. Uh, due, to, uh, due to bad uh, heating systems. Bad heating systems, okay, yeah. Yes, and in fact, the patients are placed in a closed room where the oxygen is provided with a high pressure. That's the name hyperbaric. And uh, the patient uh, is exposed to this hyperbaric oxygen and the uh, oxygen pressure in the body uh, favors healing. Uh, that means that with a delay of two weeks, uh, two months, uh, the, the patient will reduce his healing time for about three, three weeks or one month. It's very really important. Yeah, but in yeah. fact, the main problem is uh, it's really uh, um, difficult because you have to 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 have this therapy each day. Mm-hmm. The uh, the set is about two hours long. Yeah. That many Jason, maybe Jason can explain how he he feel with uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Uh, Oh, let me tell the hyperbaric story. Yeah, <clears throat> tell your hyperbaric story. All right, so I I go up to Lyon to get the surgery, and uh, meet up with Doctor Guillaume. He's, he's awesome and everything, and he, he's he's straight up with me, and he says eh, it's going to be pretty heavy. Um, so we're going to schedule you right away after you come out for these hyperbaric sessions. So there I am at the 
come out of the surgery and then, you know, I think it's the very next day I start going to the hyperbaric sessions for like these two hours. It's basically like a two-hour session and they take you down to like 1.5 bars. I think it's like the equivalent of 15 meters or something. And it's like a little submarine. No, no this, wasn't, this wasn't even like a little submarine. Okay, so the one at the Leon Hospital, I mean, God bless them. They're really great there and the people who manage the machine were really awesome and they were they were great. But this thing, it basically looks like a giant propane tank with a tiny little porthole. I mean, but it's like a propane tank that you can fit maybe like, you know, five people in comfortably, but they put like six or whatever, you know. And so it's it's very compact and contained. So they have like a person sitting in like a wheelchair on your left and a person on your right, uh, two people on your right. And then they have a bed in the center and they basically slide you in because the hole, the porthole is so small for you to go in that you have to, like, keep your arms in. So uh, for the first, like, two or three days that I was there in Lyon, um, I went into this thing. And you, and you go in and um, they give you a gla- if – if you're new, they often will give you, like, a bottle of water because what happens is as the pressure drops, they do take you down very slow in case there's an emergency and they have to, you know, bring you back up. They take you down very slow, but as you're going, it's basically like, you know, when you drive up a mountain or down a mountain or you fly and your ears pop, well, that happens about every 20 seconds. And so it can, and some people freak out, actually. One person actually started freaking out because they, their ears wouldn't pop and it got very painful. And you basically like drink this water or you swallow and it causes your ears to pop. So it's constantly popping. And then basically you're stuck in this tin can for two hours and um, you do feel a little bit claustrophobic and trapped because, you know, it's not – you can't open the door. I mean, even if, if there's an emergency and there's, there's all these, like, uh, anti-flame retardant stuff because it's a high-pressure oxygen environment. So, I mean, anything could theoretically – you're basically inside of a giant oxygen bomb because <laughs> if there was a spark anywhere, it could really, it could really be a dangerous situation. So, I mean, that's basically what the, the hyperbaric chamber there was like. And let and, me just say here, I mean, it sounds painful or tedious or whatever, but we're talking about wounds here that are about, and if, and if you think it's not possible to have wounds like that and not bleed to death, think again. I mean, it, it, we're talking about wounds that are about an inch or two inches deep and three or four inches um, wide. wide. And six to eight inches long. Yeah. So depending on how severe uh, your problem is and how long you have been misdiagnosed, you will have bigger and bigger wounds. And this is why it's so important to try to do something as soon as you get the diagnosis. Right, Right, doctor? Yes, right. You you, you asked me uh, uh, what what have the consequences if the diagnosis is not made, uh, the, the main consequence is the patient distress with pain. Uh, the other consequence is the extension of the disease uh, in death and in the surface of the superficial uh, skin. Uh, therefore, the, the treatment becomes more and more difficult for this. And radical. And, uh, yes, and radical, of course. And uh, another consequence of uh, uh, long-standing inflammation in the skin is the possible um, uh, appearance of uh, a cancer. It's not specific to HS. It's uh, a mechanism that can occur to every chronic skin wound 
uh, and cancer only occur after 20 years or 30 years of healing. Uh, in fact, the HS does not cannot be considered as a precancerous lesion, but you have to treat it correctly because the only cases of cancer um, occurring in HS uh, occurred because of a long-standing disease. Mm. That's why it's important to make a good diagnosis and to uh, offer the patient the good treatment. So the sooner you get diagnosed, the sooner you get your surgery done, the... Uh, surgery is not uh, the sole treatment, and uh, we do not operate all the patients. Ah. Uh, if uh, the, the, the most important thing is to uh, perform the diagnosis and now to, uh, to meet a practitioner who knows the disease and the practitioner will decide with you what uh, is the best treatment for you. Surgery is one of the treatments. In fact, the other treatments are not as radical as surgery, are not as efficient as surgery, but surgery uh, remains an aggressive treatment. Uh, sometimes you need an aggressive treatment for this aggressive disease, but sometimes you don't need uh, surgery. And what are these other treatments? Um, maybe before talking about the treatment, we can also speak about the other factors that can induce or favor both the disease or the spares up. Because the other treatments can only be clearly understood if you know how the disease occurs and why the disease occurs. Mm -hmm. Of course, we, we, we don't know everything about the disease. We only uh, know the uh, follicular occlusion, and uh, as I, I said, uh, uh, we don't know why this ocular, uh, with, uh, follicular, follicular occlusion occurs, uh, but what we can say is that uh, infection uh, after the inflammation. Because of the follicular origin, bacteria, uh, which are normally present in the skin and in the glands, uh, can proliferate and induce uh, infection. In fact, infection uh, is responsible for the pain, for the disease severity, but it's not the first event in the disease. The first event is inflammation. And that's the reason why antibiotics are not fully effective. Uh, in fact, uh, GPs or any doctor unaware of the disease will probably propose antibiotics uh, to the patient because the disease uh, looks like an infection disease. An infectious disease. But in fact, uh, antibiotics can only um, uh, calm the disease. Is that correct in English? Yep. It can soothe yeah. the symptoms. Calm it down. Mm -hmm. It can calm it, that'll work. Yes. But uh, 
there are three problems with antibiotics. The first one is the tolerance. There are some uh, side effects with antibiotics. It depends on the antibiotics, of course. The second problem is uh, when the antibiotics will be stopped. Uh, the, the, the disease uh, will be still present. The inflammation will be still here, latent in the skin. And the antibiotics withdrawal uh, will induce a recurrence of the disease. We don't know when the disease will recur, but it will be it will be likely it will likely recur after antibiotics withdrawal. The third problem with antibiotics is the theoretical progressive selection of resistant bacteria. And if you try antibiotics, we will kill the sensitive bacteria, but the resistant bacteria will be there again, and the disease for the next time will be uh, induced, the flare-up flare will be induced by the resistant bacteria. So next you will have to take another antibiotics, more powerful, and again, again, again. And in fact, at the end, uh, some patients um, describe the fact that antibiotics are uh, not efficient at all, even for other infectious diseases uh, than uh, HS. It's basically like bacterial gladiator training. Indeed. Sorry? Like a battle between. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was making a joke. And it would it leave you battle. open to all sorts of other problems and complications. Well, all it does is select the strongest bacteria to come back and infect you. And they're the only ones left. And yeah. It can, it can get quite bad. It's, it's no solution. Before we continue with solutions, I'd like to ask you, how can you make a definitive diagnosis for HS? Uh, as I said, you, you have to, to meet the free main uh, diagnostic criteria, uh, that is the typical lesions, the typical localization, and relapses and chronicity. There are other okay. di diagnostic criteria, uh, such as familial history of HS or boils, uh, smoking, and uh, for women, hormonal influence, the boils get worse during the premenstrual period, for example. That's over diagnostic criteria. But uh, in fact, sometimes uh, we can not uh, be sure that we are dealing with HAs. Uh, for example, uh, I remember uh, a man with uh, uh, 23 years old, about 23 years old, with a hump, an, an abscess in the uh, armpit. It was, it was the, the only one lesion. Uh, the, the lesion developed uh, for three days. Uh, it looks typically like an HS lesion, but I, I could not be sure that uh, it was HS. I just mentioned it and asked the patient to keep the diagnostic in mind, uh, but we cannot uh, assess the diagnosis. Sometimes it's difficult. Okay, now before the condition gets so bad, 
that somebody is going to be considering surgery, what can be done in the meantime? Uh, over, over treatment uh, depends on uh, what you want to treat. Maybe you want to treat a flare-up or you want to give a patient a long-term treatment. The, the objectives are not the same. Uh, treatment of a flare-up is to relieve the pain. Treatment of a long-term treatment is to prevent flare-up. In fact, uh, these two objectives are sometimes contradictory. Uh, the best example is for antibiotics. Uh, I said that antibiotics are not effective enough in the disease. In fact, antibiotics are usually effective to treat the flare-up. You, you can uh, 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 obtain resolution of the, the pain because of resolution of the flare-up. You don't treat the disease, but you treat the consequence of the disease. Uh, for this example, antibiotics are given for a few days and uh, the difficulties uh, related to uh, bacterial resistance uh, are not as important as long-term treatment with antibiotics. But, so sometimes the two objectives are contradictory. Uh, besides surgery and antibiotics, um, the practitioner has to uh, to give some uh, advices about lifestyle. Uh, and and uh, one of uh, the points to discuss it, uh, is uh, smoking. Uh, about uh, 70 to 90 percent of patients with H8 uh, are smokers. That is uh, really uh, bigger than what is observed in the general population. So there is a link between tobacco and uh, HS. In fact, we can only say that. This is an objective uh, finding the link between uh, smoking and uh, HS. But in fact, we don't know uh, whether uh, smoking is a really uh, a cause inducing uh, HS. May I may I interject uh, something? No, <laughs> no yes, leave alone. Of course. Don't, don't go after that one. Don't go. We're no, not gonna... I, no, I just want to point out that there are some studies that I read recently where um, people with rheumatoid arthritis, which is also an autoimmune inflammatory condition, uh, which I have, and uh, that the studies say that uh, there is a, a strong correlation between people who have rheumatoid arthritis and smoking also. However, what they found out was was that the people with RA smoked because it provided relief. It was uh it uh triggers the increase of acetylcholine receptors on the nerves and the acetylcholine actually provided pain relief for the patients. Well, so that okay. was so just a little I do have one thing to say on it, right? So it's like it's a stressful thing, right? Having yeah. HS, right? It's just stressful. And uh, what's a common coping mechanism that people develop um, for coping with stress? Like most people, are, like they, they cope with stress, and 
and, and that is uh, nicotine. So, I mean, like, it seems to me so completely correlated. I mean, correlational. I mean, it's so, so completely like, um, duh, of course they would be more smokers because there's more stress. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, that's yeah. how I feel about that. So, I mean, it's like everybody wants to load on to smoking every single disease. Like, you see this list of diseases that it causes, and, like, it's like, dude, seriously, if everybody wants to jump on it, it's smoking is the cause train. And that's the only reason why I'm a little bit dubious about it because it sounds. I think that's like, definitely a correlation, but it could be that the people are kind of self-medicating. You know, they found something that gives them some relief. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it does. I know you're not going to like that, doctor, but carry on. Anyway. <laughs> carry, carry on. Of course, of course, as a doctor, I cannot recommend smoking. <laughs> of course. Uh, what I said is that there is a correlation, no, there yeah. is a link. Uh, it is demonstrated that uh, 70 to 90 percent of the patients with uh, HS are smokers. Uh, that's a, a fact. Uh, you can say that smoking favors HS, or you can say that HS favors smoking. You can also uh, say that. Uh, uh, HS and smoking are favored by a common mechanism. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, it's yeah. possible. Could be, could be some there, kind there, of genetic thing. Yes, there, there are also uh, some uh, biological arguments. However, um, there are contradictory results. Studies uh, that uh, some studies uh, suggested that uh, there is an influence of smoking on HS severity, mm-hmm. well, but this, this result has not been uh, demonstrated by other studies. What is known is that uh, smoking usually induces uh, healing delay. Another, uh, well, that's um, what they said. The, can, can, I, can I break in just to tell this little story? Can I tell yes, the story about the smoking? Sure. Okay. So I go to the hyperbaric chamber, okay? Yeah. And uh, doctor, uh, very nice, lovely people. I mean, I love them to death. They were so great, um, like uh, from the whole chain. But uh, they tell me basically I'm going and doing my sessions, you know, doing the each day, two hours in the thing. And at a certain point, they, they stop you and they measure your wounds to see how it's progressing because they're also doing studies. I mean, it's still kind of uh, hyperbaric medicine is still kind of experimental. It is a little bit experimental, and they're trying to gain more footing and get more respect from other people and have it acknowledged as a treatment. So she wanted to track uh, – the doctor wanted to track all of the, the wound movements. <clears throat> and so at one point, like, she's like, well, you have to stop going. They told me I had to stop. I had to slow down my hyperbaric treatments because I was healing too fast, and she was worried – that the wound was not going to heal properly, that there was going to be a complication, right? She said, slow down, okay? Right. <laughs> so after she says this to me, so I'm going like slower, and then after one of the treatments, I was outside, I was smoking a cigarette, and the same person who had just said this to me like not 20 minutes ago then says to me, you can't smoke, it completely reverses the effectiveness of the hyperbaric treatment. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, hold on a second. Either I am this very special rare case, or maybe somebody has jumped on the anti-smoking train and just wants to say that because it's just a thing to say today. So I don't know about anyone else's experience, but I smoked like a damn chimney through the entire hyperbaric session, 
Not and through the session. Not through the session. I not inside. <laughs> no. Through the entire hyperbaric treatment, I smoked, and they told me I was healing too fast, and I did not have any problem. And Chu will tell you the nurse was like, "I don't believe it's incredible. It's just." She said it was like it was like magical growing, and I had to slow down. So I mean, I don't know. Again, I'm not saying that smoking in any way like helped the situation. But I, it obviously, in my single case, which is not a, not a scientific experiment, it didn't have any negative effect. In fact, maybe it actually had a positive one. I don't know at all. So I'm just like uh, with a grain of salt because everybody jumps on the no smoking train. They always do. You know, it's like, you know, coming into the station, choo-choo, all aboard. And- Except in the EU. Congress. They're allowed to smoke there. Yeah, the, the people who pass the anti-smoking laws smoke in their workplace. I mean, yeah. what's that all about? I don't know. Hey, I'm just saying. All right. So, Anyhow, so the next thing, you have to deal with the causative factors, the lifestyle, the stress, the smoking, yeah. yes or no, whether it's correlated or not, etc. Now, what's the next yeah. thing? Uh, uh, two, 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 there are... Uh, experimental data that uh, suggests that uh, uh, smoking increases sweat secretion or smoking is a pro-inflammatory agent or smoking and just follicular occlusion. But what is important to say, uh, it it is that we lack uh, clear data about smoking and HS. And uh, for example, whether Smoking improved HS has never been evaluated. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Somebody needs to do a study, but they're never going to get that study past them. So, you know, they're really never going to get it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, apart uh, from smoking and the stress, there are also other things you have to do uh, with like uh, HS. Um, Overweight is also a classical um, a factor suggested by study. In fact, uh, as we said about smoking, uh, it is not because someone is overweight or someone smokes that it will develop HS. But maybe if you have HS and if you are overweighted, maybe the HS will be more severe. We don't know why, maybe it is because, um, uh, because of a frictional effect. Uh, deeper of the fold where the disease is located, more intense is the rubbing, the friction, maybe is the mechanism uh, why, by, by which overweight influence HS. So what you're saying is there's more, there's more when there are folds in the skin, it could be warmer and more humid in that area, and the friction yes, can yes, cause yes. more occlusions yes. than if. Well, there's yes, a, but there's also very thin people who have. Yeah, like there's this. very yes. thin. And yes, there's a there's course. a there's a rather famous doctor whose name I cannot pull out of my head right at the moment, but he wrote a book uh, recently. He's uh, in the U.S. And his claim is that in many instances, obesity itself is a sign of inflammation. Of, it's an inflammatory condition. Yes, of course. Maybe it's the mechanism uh, by, by which 
overweight uh, favors uh, HSCRFs. Uh, there are also a recent study uh, that uh, uh, evaluates they evaluated uh, the link between HS and the metabolic syndrome. Uh -huh. uh, metabolic syndrome is uh, uh, a disease uh, where the patients uh, have uh, uh, several pathological conditions uh, such as high blood pressure, obesity, um, uh, abnormalities in the lipids, the blood lipids, cholesterol, or triglyceride, triglyceride, I don't pronounce that well. Triglyceride, uh, triglyceride. Yeah. yes. And also, yes, or diabetes also. And uh, in this study, uh, about uh, 80 patients, I, I remember, um, there was uh, an increase, uh, 80 patients with HS, there was an increase in the prevalence in, of metabolic syndrome uh, when compared to uh, uh, 100 healthy subjects. So maybe overweight and just uh, HS uh, uh, because of metabolic conditions. Mm. So is it only uh, kind of like psychological prevention that you treat it with? I mean, the, yes. so yes. You, you deal with the psychology, uh, the stress, the yeah. uh, the weight yes. and, and that prevents flare-ups. Yes, I think so. Uh, what we can uh, say about HS uh, is that uh, several studies evaluated quality of life during HS. There are uh, some uh, qualitative studies, and uh, these studies reported what, uh, what the patient felt about the, the disease. The main, uh, the main complaints from the patient are pain, uh, flow and discharge from the lesion, and the skin appearance. And in, in, this, uh, in this field, uh, in fact, uh, this has a daily medical social impact, really important. Uh, this uh, HS impacts every field of the life, uh, professional life, affective, love life, familial life, leisure, all these fields are impacted by uh, HS. So I think uh, the, the, the psychological effect of the disease is really, is really important. That's because that's why I I, I tell you uh, uh, about the, the vicious cycle between psychological uh, problems and HS. It's really important to take into account uh, this uh, part of the uh, of the disease. Yeah, extremely important. And, I, and we just got a message from. Um uh, Clotilde Arvan, she works for, uh, for a non-profit association in Belgium and yes. works very, very closely with uh, the, the other non-profit we mentioned earlier, Solidarité Verneuil. They're very, very active. They're trying to help a lot of people. And uh, she writes, hi, everybody. I'm writing to you from the Maladie de Verneuil in Belgique or HS in Belgium. Like in the USA, like in every other country, 
um, Hydrodenida superativa poisons the lives of tens of thousands of patients. I would like to convey a message to patients. We must stop hiding. We do not have to be ashamed. Our pain is not divine punishment for acts that we didn't commit. We must think of our children, the sad possibility that one day they too will live the hell we're living. We must raise our, raise our heads and beat, us, and beat it all together across Europe. We know that specialists' interest in HS, um, uh, we know, I think she meant, we know there are specialists interested in HS and they need us to understand. Even if it seems a challenge every day when we're rested from fighting our own pain, even if, if sometimes we doubt and need rest, everyone in each, in his or her own can diffuse, can share this basic information with uh, their neighbors, colleagues, and friends. Never forget that each of them knows at least 100 people and therefore at least one patient with HS. Nothing must be this fight, neither the language nor the distance, nor the cultural, social, religious differences. I thought also, um, I'm thinking also about those professionals who do their best to help their patients. Most of them feel helpless, and I hope that, like us, they will not give up, even if the results are not fast. We must help them in their turn. They can help us and future generations. Good luck to everyone. So that was from Belgium, Clotilde Arvin. Uh, thank you, Clotilde. Wasn't, wasn't there... I think that uh, Chu mentioned at some point that there are quite a number of people who uh, end up committing suicide from this condition. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and in fact, it's very difficult uh, to recognize those patients who will uh, suffer enough uh, to, uh, to suicide. It's uh, very difficult to uh, understand uh, why uh, this person uh, did not call anybody uh, to, uh, to to say to 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 need to, to say he he or she need needs help. It's really difficult for a practitioner to understand why uh, the patient uh, remains alone. With yeah. Well, speaking of not remaining alone, let me just say that we posted on our chat room for those who are there or who are listening. There are several nonprofits trying to help patients. You can call them. You can get advice. You can. Uh, they can recommend doctors to you. One of them is ASDF Belgique or Belgium. Um, see the Facebook link on our chat room. The other one is an Italian association. And there's an English one, and there's, of course, the French one, Solidarité Verneuil. So you'll see all the links on the chat room. Do not hesitate to contact them if you think that this is what you're suffering from. Yes, there are also uh, organizations in Spain, in Germany. In fact, I think in quite every country around the world, uh, we to, to to identify uh, such organizations to do uh, something all together. I think so, and I yeah. think that that's one of the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to get the information out in 
as many languages as we can. Well, there's, there's actually a number of people who've, who've come to our forum specifically. An echo is <laughs> driving me batty. Um, there's uh, a lot of people who've come to our forum specifically for that information that we put on there um, and have written us about it and talked to us about it, and so that's one of the reasons why we're doing the show. Yeah, we're, we're really surprised at the number of people who have... Uh, responded to this and have revealed some of them privately they'll they send me emails and say i have this disease and i am so so thankful that i now know what it is and they go to their doctors and whether they get the help they need i don't know the, i think the, the patients encounter uh, several difficulties because of the disease and one of the difficulties is that the disease is not known also by uh, everyone. If you have uh, um, high blood pressure, if you have uh, diabetes, if you have cancer, you can say it and uh, the, the person will understand what you are talking about. But if you talk about HS or even if you talk about recurrent uh, abscesses, the growing or in the pit, the person will not understand what you are talking about. It's a real difficulty for the patients. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and the the, the organization, uh, such uh, uh, the, the organization in France or in Belgium, are really important because the patients uh, can call uh, the the organizations, and they will uh, find people who know the disease, who share the same problems. And it's really important to the patient to understand that they are not alone with their disease. Absolutely. Yeah. Networking. Well, on the topic of, you know, you don't really, you know, you're saying that it's difficult to talk to somebody about it. I mean, you don't. That's really not something as a general rule that you talk to people about. It's not like, you know, you're sitting over over dinner and the person's like, yeah, it turns out I have diabetes and I have to use this pump. And then you're like, yeah, it turns out I get giant pus-filled boils on my balls. You know, I mean, you just, it's not really a topic of like dinner conversation, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it really is one of those situations yes. where you can't communicate. And, 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 and um, Dr. Yim pointed out, he kind of, as a practitioner of, uh, a medical practitioner, he doesn't understand why uh, somebody with this disease um, would not like reach out for help, but um, it's kind of a little bit. Uh, it's more complicated than just the disease. So you kind of imagine that the person who has this very often will have other problems, like you were saying, like say for instance obesity. Um, so this person might be obese, and he might have a lot of social problems because of that. Because in my opinion, um, obesity is a medical problem. It is not uh, a willpower problem, and it's not even a caloric problem. I don't believe that kind of crap. Inflammation. Inflammatory or something else, or it has some factors, because I I don't believe that it's just, oh, you ate too many donuts. I I don't buy the you ate too many donuts theory of overweight thing. But when you are overweight, uh, there's a lot of social problems that you have with people. There's a lot of things like the way people treat you and uh, how you feel about yourself and uh, the opinions of everyone in society. Um, so that can contribute to, to, to the depression as well, which probably also inflames the disease more, I think, than skin folds. Um, but, 
you know, I can understand why somebody who has those types of problems would commit suicide. I mean, it really is actually a very depressing and painful situation because um, w- when you have them, they are very painful in a, in a kind of an interesting way. Um, you really do find it very difficult to move and walk and, and sit, uh, uh, but the pain is not so much that you would want to kill yourself. So I don't think that's what it is. I think it's the... Uh, uh, I think it's like a, a constellation of problems that, the, that that person manifests in their life from obesity and HS and all this different stuff. Because, I mean, when you when you have like this sort of, you know, giant red uh, thing, like, you know, two inches from your penis, you're not going to be able to have any kind of sex life with somebody. So, of course, that can, and you don't want to have relationships and you're kind of afraid of having any kind of intimate contact with people uh, because of those types of things. You never know when you're going to show up. You don't want to have to talk about it. So then you can kind of end up isolating yourself from kind of intimate contact. And, you know, that just sort of starts to spiral out of control. So I can't understand why somebody would would, would do that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a horrible thing. And, I mean, I'm just so thankful that... Uh that there have not been any other flare-ups no, uh, since, since uh, well, since you probably removed all of his plans, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing left to flare up. Yeah, he cut me up pretty good. Speaking well, of... Well, yeah, I, I would like to say that uh, uh, the, the, the disease uh, can really induce uh, patients withdrawal, social withdrawal, emotional it is important to uh, in the clinical part to encounter the patient and the family uh, together with the patients. Uh, I think it's important to speak to the patients, but also to speak to the family members to explain the disease. And uh, uh, so the patients usually also have has difficulties in explaining the disease to the spouse or to the, the mother, as uh, Jason explained uh, uh, the part of the book. It's really, it's really important to, uh, to prevent patients' withdrawal. Yeah. 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 We have a, a question from a listener here who's wondering, to what extent diet can influence HS? What extent? The listener wants to know, can diet improve the HS, or indeed does it worsen it, depending on what you eat? In fact, we uh, don't have any scientific study about that. Um, there are some patients' uh, improvement of the disease with some diets, some diets but we, we don't have any uh, scientific data about that. Patients report uh, improvement with um, uh, 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 gluten-free diet, for example. I have uh, some patients with this kind of diet who reported improvement, but in fact, we do not know if it's uh, um, an effect observed because the patient is now uh, managed correctly by mm. practitioners who, who know the, the disease or whether the, the, the disease really improved because of the diet. In well, fact, well, the, the disease uh, 
uh, occurs because of several uh, mechanisms. And uh, uh, you, you can see that easily that uh, a psychological condition uh, will uh, also influence the way uh, with uh, the, the way to, to, to eat, the, the diet you will uh, have. Uh, there is uh, also a modification induced by smoking or by the, uh, the, e the, the image the patient uh, has about uh, him or herself. Mm -hmm. Well, it would make sense because um, uh, there's many, many people who report having a reduction in inflammation when they stop eating gluten or casein, the protein, uh, milk protein. Yeah. Sugar, yeah. sugar, too. And sugar, too. Sugar, sugar. So if it is, if the cause is inflammation, it makes perfect sense that for some people at least. I think even on the Wikipedia page, they do say that uh, people report, again, I don't think there's any scientific studies like Dr. Gillam said, but uh, people report uh, that there's some help from, from low-carbohydrate diets, basically, mm -hmm. because that's what we're talking about here. I mean, if you're going to cut out gluten, you're essentially cutting out a very large source of carbohydrates, which is essentially sugar anyway. Um, my personal opinion is that no diet does not have a significant effect on it um, because I just don't think that it has enough. I think that it can help you manage some stress. Uh, it can help you with the obesity problem, and those do help ameliorate it, but skinny people get it too. Um, I, still, I think the thing that helps me the most, I mean, besides yeah, having the surgery and, and talking with Gilem and, and, and all the, the actual, the great experience from, you know, meeting them and, and all the aftercare because there were a lot of people the, from the Solidarité Vernoy and stuff and all those people meeting them and realizing, you know, you're not alone and having people understand, that actually helped a lot. But another thing that helped a lot is just kind of, a little bit of like um, deep breathing and meditation to kind of manage stress and being a little bit more open and talking about uh, problems and not letting it fester, basically. Uh, the, I think that those things actually helped me a whole lot more than specifically a diet did for Vernoy. That's, that's the only thing that I have to say. In that specific instance, I felt that it probably helped a little bit more than anything else. So you're saying that the psychological approach was more helpful than, say, diet? A hundred times more. I really feel that it was the psychological approach that had more to do with uh, with getting, uh, getting a handle on it than, than diet did. Okay. Because at the time, I was doing a bit of a diet experiment, and, and I did not see... Uh, the benefit that I that I thought I would, so I think that the the psychological aspect is very very important. Okay. Okay. Uh, in uh, the, the the hospital I work, uh, we began a few months ago um, uh, um, a systematic study about uh, diet. Uh, uh, every patient who comes to the clinic. <laughs> Uh, is proposed to encounter a dietitian. Uh, the first results we observed is that there are often um, too many calories in the diet of the patients. Too many but what? Calories. 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 Mm. Yeah, calories. It's a, it's a, a first result. It's not a, a scientific and rather an impression that uh, a real result, in fact. Uh, the study is ongoing, about uh, well, that. 
on that on that topic, just to say, there's a there's a great book. It's very it's kind of academic. Actually, I can't remember the name of it. I think it's Big Fat Lies. Is what? It's, no, not that one. Um, God, good calories, bad calories. Uh, that might be good calories, bad calories. And he basically goes through all of the different obesity theories, and he talks about the calorie theory. Right? It gives you this kind of formula, which is calories in, calories out. And he kind of goes through, and he pretty much lambastes the entire philosophy of the calories in, calories out idea. And he does show you that, like, if you follow their model, that basically, like, I mean, if you eat an additional 50 calories a day, like 20 years down the road, you should be like 50, 50 pounds of weight or something. So he kind of points out that, that that is a very kind of outmoded idea about it and that there are other theories than, than the calories one. And uh, so, like, I would, I would suggest that you might want to look at the deviating away from the calories aspect and maybe even wonder about the types of food that people are eating and also the quality of that food as maybe having some kind of effect because it's not simply a number of the calories that you're taking, but uh, what kind of what is what is what kind of food is the calories actually from, um, and whether or not that person really should be having that type. I mean, some people uh, do perfectly fine on a very high carbohydrate diet, and some people don't. Some people get you know more fat, less fat, whatever. Um, and so this book actually goes through and talks about, and he, he quotes lots and lots of scientific papers and all the different research on it, and he looks at it from every angle, very sort of like, he takes a stand back and he just says, this is what these people say, and then he says, but that really can't be the case. And at the end, of course, you get the feeling that basically no one really knows. Let, let, me, let me give an example. In my opinion, uh, the only uh, constant finding in HS is that nothing is constant in this <laughs> oh Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And uh, um, in fact, the disease occurs because of several factors. And uh, in one patient, one factor will be uh, pregnant, uh, uh, while in another, it will be another factor. Uh, and uh, that's why I think it's important to offer the patient a global approach for the treatment, surgery, psychology, uh, also dietitian, um, addictologist for uh, smoking, uh, uh, patient uh, organization, of course, also. And uh, I usually uh, tell the patient that in the clinic, uh, the, the clinic offers a, a toolbox and the patient has to, took, to take in the box what he feels uh, to need. Mm, yeah. No, I, I remember because I was, and it was great. And uh, the, the really great thing, of course, is also uh, the sol- Solidarité, also the, uh, the various different support services that the clinic that, that you're at provided, which were really made everything so much better. Yeah, that's what's sad is that your own, you're kind of unique. Dr. Guillaume, in that sense, not many people have access to so much uh, treatment and care. I I didn't understand. Sorry. I I said it's sad that there aren't many doctors who take the same approach to treat a patient from the psychological and physical aspect and, you know, take care of them from the first consultation to when they're really doing better. 
Yes, yes, it's very sad. The, the disease is not well known because uh, the disease uh, is no way is not well um, enseigné. I don't know in English. It's not well uh, taught. Yeah, yes, taught. And people don't talk about it. Not really. In fact, uh, when uh, I ask uh, my colleagues about their form, their, uh, their initial formation in medicine, they do not remember about uh, HS during their training. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I remember we, uh, that, uh, I remember that um, the teacher, the dermatologist, uh, speak about HS. I think it uh, it took uh, about um, two or three minutes to discuss about this disease, but it's because there are a lot, a lot of diseases to speak about for uh, students in medicine. I think um, HS has to be uh, uh, taught in uh, uh, postgraduate. Uh, training. If you had anything that you could, if you could say anything to all the people who suffer from HS, uh, what would you say? Uh, uh, the, the, they have to find the uh, practitioners who know the disease. I think it's the most important things, thing, and I think. Uh, patient organization uh, have a lot to do with that because the the main result that they can obtain uh, is that they can address the patients for the good practitioners. Mm -hmm. yeah. A patient with HS has to be diagnosed correctly with the disease and has to be followed by a practitioner. Mm. Okay. I don't know okay. if he had to be treated, but he had to be followed by someone who knows the disease. Mm. Yeah. And you're going to write a book about all this, right? Sorry? You are going to write a book, right? Oh, <laughs> not really. We, we, we uh, have many, many, uh, many objectives with uh, Solidarité Gernoy. We have many ideas. We, we would like to... Um, to uh, uh, record a DVD about the disease. Uh, there are already a book about HS which has been uh, written by uh, uh, three uh, specialists, uh, experts in the disease, but uh, the book is, uh, is the only one is um, as unknown as the disease. We'll try to promote it. Yeah. Uh, sorry? We'll try to promote it. Yes. Yes. There are many things to do uh, to, uh, to speak up about the disease. Uh, I think the other take-home message is uh, that patients uh, have to speak up about this disease again, again, and again. Yeah. yeah. Start a blog. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. <laughs> Dr. Guillaume, it's been a pleasure to speak with you this evening. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure for me, too. Good. Well, it was great to talk to you again.
thank you for coming on and thank you so much for all the work you've done, not just Jason, but hundreds, if not thousands of people. We're going to, we actually have a thread on our forum online people can go to. We're going to provide some of the resources they can access in their own country and, uh, and continue so to collect as much information we can about this. And this interview will be translated into French so that you can share it as well with the other nonprofits. And I'm sure they'll do their job translating it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> Thank, you, Thank you so much for being with us tonight. All right. You have a good night. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Okay, folks. That uh, wraps it up for another week. We're going to be back same time, same place next week. And we until are. then, <laughs> until then, take care. Bye bye. <laughs>